Section 8 of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women by Margaret Fuller. Section 8 Woman in the Nineteenth Century, Part Six. See a common woman at forty. Scarcely has she the remains of beauty, of any soft poetic grace which gave her attraction as woman, which kindled the hearts of those who looked on her to sparkling thoughts, or diffused round her a roseate air of gentle love. See her, who was indeed a lovely girl, in the coarse, full-blown dahlia flower of what is commonly matron beauty, fat, fair, and forty, showily dressed, and with manners as broad and full as her frill or satin cloak. People observe, how well she is preserved! She is a fine woman still, they say. This woman, whether as a duchess in diamonds or one of our city dames in mosaics, charms the poet's heart no more and would look much out of place kneeling before the Madonna. She does well the honours of her house, leads society, is, in short, always spoken and thought of upholstery-wise. Or see that careworn face from which every soft line is blotted, those faded eyes from which lonely tears have driven the flashes of fancy, the mild white beam of a tender enthusiasm, this woman is not so ornamental to a tea-party, yet she would please better in picture. Yet surely she, no more than the other, looks as a human being should at the end of forty years. Forty years! Have they bound those brows with no garland, shed in the lamp no drop of ambrosial oil? Not so looked the Iphigenia in Aulus. Her forty years had seen her in anguish, in sacrifice, in utter loneliness. But those pains were borne for her father and her country, the sacrifice she had made pure for herself and those around her. Wandering alone at night in the vestal solitude of her imprisoning grove, she has looked up through its living summits to the stars, which shed down into her aspect their own lofty melody. At forty she would not misbecome the marble. Not so looks the Persica. She is withered, she is faded, the drapery that enfolds her has in its dignity an angularity, too, that tells of age, of sorrow, of a stern resignation to the must. But her eye, the torch of the soul, is untamed, and in the intensity of her reading we see a soul invincibly young in faith and hope. Her age is her charm for it is the night of the past that gives this beacon fire leave to shine. Whither more and more, black chrysalid, thou dost but give the winged beauty time to mature its splendours. Not so looked Victoria Colonna after her life of a great hope and of true conjugal fidelity. She had been not merely a bride but a wife, and each hour had helped to plume the noble bird. A coronet of pearls will not shame her brow. It is white and ample, a worthy altar for love and thought. Even among the North American Indians, a race of men as completely engaged in mere instinctive life as almost any in the world, 
and where each chief, keeping many wives as useful servants, of course looks with no kind eye on celibacy in woman, it was excused in the following instance mentioned by Mrs. Jameson. A woman dreamt in youth that she was betrothed to the sun. She built her a wigwam apart, filled it with emblems of her alliance, and means of an independent life. There she passed her days, sustained by her own exertions, and true to her supposed engagement. In any tribe, we believe, a woman, who lived as if she was betrothed to the sun, would be tolerated, and the rays which made her youth blossom sweetly would crown her with a halo in age. There is on this subject a nobler view than heretofore, if not the noblest, and improvement here must coincide with that in the view taken of marriage. We must have units before we can have union, says one of the ripe thinkers of the times. If larger intellectual resources begin to be deemed needful to woman, still more is a spiritual dignity in her, or even the mere assumption of it, looked upon with respect. Joanna Southcote and Mother Anne Lee are sure of a band of disciples. Ecstatica, Dolorosa, of enraptured believers who will visit them in their lowly huts, and wait for days to revere them in their trances. The foreign noble traverses land and sea to hear a few words from the lips of the lowly peasant girl whom he believes especially visited by the Most High. Very beautiful in this way was the influence of the invalid of St. Petersburg, as described by de Mestre. Mysticism, which may be defined as the brooding soul of the world, cannot fail of its oracular promise as to woman. The mothers, the mother of all things, are expressions of thought which lead the mind towards this side of universal growth. Whenever a mystical whisper was heard, from Bemen down to St. Simon sprang up the thought that if it be true, as the legend says, that humanity withers through a fault committed by and a curse laid upon woman, through her pure child or influence shall the new Adam, the redemption, arise. Innocence is to be replaced by virtue, dependence by a willing submission, in the heart of the virgin mother of the new race. The spiritual tendency is toward the elevation of woman, but the intellectual by itself is not so. Plato sometimes seems penetrated by that high idea of love which considers man and woman as the twofold expression of one thought. This the angel of Swedenborg, the angel of the coming age, cannot surpass, but only explain more fully. But then again Plato, the man of intellect, treats woman in the Republic as property, and in the Timaeus says that man, if he misuse the privileges of one life, shall be degraded into the form of woman and then, if he do not redeem himself, into that of a bird. This, as I said above, expresses most happily how anti-poetical is this state of mind. For the poet, contemplating the world of things, selects various birds as the symbols of his most gracious and ethereal thoughts, just as he calls upon his genius as muse rather than as god. But the intellect, cold, is ever more masculine than feminine. Warmed by emotion, it rushes toward Mother Earth, and puts on the forms of beauty. The electrical, the magnetic element in woman has not been fairly brought out at any period. Everything might be expected from it. She has far more of it than man. This is commonly expressed by saying that her intuitions are more rapid and more correct. 
you will often see men of high intellect absolutely stupid in regard to the atmospheric changes, the fine invisible links which connect the forms of life around them, while common women, if pure and modest, so that a vulgar self do not overshadow the mental eye, will seize and delineate these with unerring discrimination. Women who combine this organization with creative genius are very commonly unhappy at present. They see too much to act in conformity with those around them, and their quick impulses seem folly to those who do not discern the motives. This is a usual effect of the apparition of genius, whether in man or woman, but is more frequent with regard to the latter, because a harmony, an obvious order and self-restraining decorum, is most expected from her. Then women of genius, even more than men, are likely to be enslaved by an impassioned sensibility. The world repels them more rudely, and they are of weaker bodily frame. Those who seem overladen with electricity frighten those around them. When she merely enters the room, I am what the French call Eris, said a man of petty feelings and worldly character of such a woman whose depth of eye and powerful motion announced the conductor of the mysterious fluid. Woe to such a woman who finds herself linked to such a man in bonds too close! It is the crudest of errors. He will detest her with all the bitterness of wounded self-love. He will take the whole prejudice of manhood upon himself, and to the utmost of his power imprison and torture her by its imperious rigours. Yet allow room enough, and the electric fluid will be found to invigorate and embellish, not destroy life. Such women are the great actresses, the songsters. Such traits we read in a late searching, though too French, analysis of the character of Mademoiselle Rachel by a modern La Rochefoucauld. The Greeks thus represent the muses, they have not the golden serenity of Apollo, they are overflowed with thought, there is something tragic in their air. Such are the sibyls of Gerino, the eye is overfull of expression, dilated and lustrous, it seems to have drawn the whole being into it. Sickness is the frequent result of this overcharged existence. To this region, however misunderstood, or interpreted with presumptuous carelessness, belong the phenomena of magnetism or mesmerism, as it is now often called, where the trance of the ecstatica purports to be produced by the agency of one human being on another, instead of, as in her case, direct from the spirit. The worldling has his sneer at this as at the services of religion. The churches can always be filled with women. Show me a man in one of your magnetic states, and I will believe. Women are indeed the easy victims both of priestcraft and self-delusion. But this would not be if the intellect was developed in proportion to the other powers. They would then have a regulator, and be more in equipoise, yet must retain the same nervous susceptibility while their physical structure is such as it is. It is with just that hope that we welcome everything that tends to strengthen the fibre and develop the nature on more sides. When the intellect and affections are in harmony, when intellectual consciousness is calm and deep, inspiration will not be confounded with fancy. Then she who advances with rapturous lyrical glances, singing the song of the earth, singing its hymn to the gods, will not be pitied as a madwoman, nor shrunk from as unnatural. The Greeks, who saw everything in forms, which we are trying to ascertain as law, and classify as cause, 
embodied all this in the form of Cassandra. Cassandra was only unfortunate in receiving her gift too soon. The remarks, however, that the world still makes in such cases are well expressed by the Greek dramatist. In the Trojan dames there are fine touches of nature with regard to Cassandra. Hecuba shows that mixture of shame and reverence that prosaic kindred always do toward the inspired child, the poet, the elected sufferer for the race. When the herald announces that Cassandra is chosen to be the mistress of Agamemnon, Hecuba answers with indignation, betraying the pride and faith she involuntarily felt in this daughter. Hecuba the maiden of Phoebus, to whom the golden-haired gave as a privilege a virgin life. Talthybius. Love of the inspired maiden hath pierced him. Hecuba. Then cast away, my child, the sacred keys, and from thy person the consecrated garlands which thou wearest. Yet when, a moment after, Cassandra appears, singing wildly her inspired song, Hecuba calls her, My frantic child yet how graceful she is in her tragic raptus the chorus shows. Chorus How sweetly at thy house's ills thou smilest, chanting what haply thou wilt not show true. If Hecuba dares not trust her highest instinct about her daughter, still less can the vulgar mind of the herald Talthybius, a man not without feeling, but with no princely, no poetic blood, abide the wild prophetic mood which insults all his prejudices. Talthybius. The venerable and that accounted wise is nothing better than that of no repute. For the greatest king of all the Greeks, the dear son of Atreus, are possessed with the love of this mad woman. I indeed am poor, yet I would not receive her to my bed. The royal Agamemnon could see the beauty of Cassandra. He was not afraid of her prophetic gifts. The best topic for a chapter on this subject in the present day would be the history of the seeress of Prevorst, the best observed subject of magnetism in our present times, and who, like her ancestresses of Delphos, was roused to ecstasy or frenzy by the touch of the laurel. I observe in her case, and in one known to me here, that what might have been a gradual and gentle disclosure of remarkable powers was broken and jarred into disease by an unsuitable marriage. Both these persons were unfortunate in not understanding what was involved in this relation, but acted ignorantly, as their friends desired. They thought that this was the inevitable destiny of woman. But when engaged in the false position, it was impossible for them to endure its dissonances, as those of less delicate perceptions can, and the fine flow of life was checked and sullied. They grew sick, but even so, learned and disclosed more than those in health are wont to do. In such cases worldlings sneer, but reverent men learn wondrous news, either from the person observed or by thoughts caused in themselves by the observation. Fenelon learns from Guyon, Kerner from his seeress, what we fain would know. But to appreciate such disclosures one must be a child, and hear the phrase, women and children, may perhaps be interpreted aright, that only little children shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. All these motions of the time, tides that betoken a waxing moon, overflow upon our land. The world at large is readier to let woman learn and manifest the capacities of her nature than it ever was before, 
and here is a less encumbered field and freer air than anywhere else. And it ought to be so. We ought to pay for Isabella's jewels. The names of nations are feminine. Religion, virtue, and victory are feminine. To those who have a superstition as to outward reigns, it is not without significance that the name of the queen of our motherland should at this crisis be Victoria, Victoria the First. Perhaps to us it may be given to disclose the era thus outwardly presaged. Another Isabella, too, at this time ascends the throne. Might she open a new world to her sex? But probably these poor little women are, least of any, educated to serve as examples or inspirers for the rest. The Spanish queen is younger. We know of her that she sprained her foot the other day, dancing in her private apartments. Of Victoria, that she reads aloud, in a distinct voice and agreeable manner, her addresses to Parliament on certain solemn days, and yearly that she presents to the nation some new prop of royalty. These ladies have, very likely, been trained more completely to the puppet-life than any other. The queens, who have been queens indeed, were trained by adverse circumstances to know the world around them and their own powers. It is moving, while amusing, to read of the Scottish peasant measuring the print left by the queen's foot as she walks, and priding himself on its beauty. It is so natural to wish to find what is fair and precious in high places, so astonishing to find the Bourbon a glutton, or the Guelph a dullard or a gossip. In our own country women are in many respects better situated than men. Good books are allowed with more time to read them. They are not so early forced into the bustle of life, nor so weighted down by demands for outward success. The perpetual changes incident to our society make the blood circulate freely through the body politic and if not favourable at present to the grace and bloom of life, they are so to activity, resource, and would be to reflection, but for a low materialist tendency from which the women are generally exempt in themselves, though its existence among the men has a tendency to repress their impulses and make them doubt their instincts, thus often paralysing their action during the best years. But they have time to think, and no traditions chain them, and few conventionalities, compared with what must be met in other nations. There is no reason why they should not discover that the secrets of nature are open, the revelations of the spirit waiting, for whoever will seek them. When the mind is once awakened to this consciousness, it will not be restrained by the habits of the past, but fly to seek the seeds of a heavenly future. Their employments are more favourable to meditation than those of men. Woman is not addressed religiously here more than elsewhere. She is told that she should be worthy to be the mother of a Washington or the companion of some good man. But in many, many instances she has already learned that all bribes have the same flaw, that truth and good are to be sought solely for their own sakes. And already an ideal sweetness floats over many forms, shines in many eyes. Already deep questions are put by young girls on the great theme, what shall I do to enter upon the eternal life? Men are very courteous to them. They praise them often, check them seldom. There is chivalry in the feeling towards the ladies, which gives them the best seats in the stage-coach, frequent admission, not only to lectures of all sorts, but to courts of justice, halls of legislature, reform conventions. The newspaper editor, would be better pleased that the ladies' book should be filled up exclusively by ladies, 
it would then indeed be a true gem, worthy to be presented by young men to the mistress of their affections. Can gallantry go further? In this country is venerated, wherever seen, the character which Goethe spoke of as an ideal, which he saw actualized in his friend and patroness, the Grand Duchess Amelia. The excellent woman is she, who, if the husband dies, can be a father to the children. And this, if read aright, tells a great deal. Women who speak in public, if they have a moral power, such as been felt from Angelina Grimke and Abby Kelly, that is, if they speak for conscience's sake, to serve a cause which they hold sacred, invariably subdue the prejudices of their hearers, and excite an interest proportionate to the aversion with which it had been the purpose to regard them. A passage in a private letter so happily illustrates this, that it must be inserted here. Abby Kelly, in the town-house of blank. The scene was not unheroic, to see that woman, true to humanity and her own nature, a centre of rude eyes and tongues, even gentlemen feeling licensed to make part of a species of mob around a female out of her sphere. As she took her seat in the desk amid the great noise, and in the throng, full like a wave of something to ensue, I saw her humanity in a gentleness and unpretension, tenderly open to the sphere around her, and had she not been supported by the power of the will of genuineness and principle, she would have failed. It led her to prayer, which in woman especially is childlike, sensibility and will going to the side of God and looking up to Him, and humanity was poured out in aspiration. She acted like a gentle hero, with her mild decision and womanly calmness. All heroism is mild and quiet and gentle, for it is life and possession, and combativeness and firmness show a want of actualness. She is as earnest, fresh, and simple as when she first entered the crusade. I think she did much good, more than the men in her place could do, for woman feels more as being and reproducing. This brings the subject more into home relations. Men speak through and mostly from intellect, and this addresses itself to that in others which is combative. Not easily shall we find elsewhere, or before this time, any written observations on the same subject so delicate and profound. The late Dr. Channing, whose enlarged and tender and religious nature shared every onward impulse of his tune, though his thoughts followed his wishes with a deliberative caution which belonged to his habits and temperament, was greatly interested in these expectations for women. His own treatment of them was absolutely and thoroughly religious. He regarded them as souls, each of which had a destiny of its own, incalculable to other minds, and whose leading it must follow, guided by the light of a private conscience. He had sentiment, delicacy, kindness, taste. But they were all pervaded and ruled by this one thought, that all beings had souls, and must vindicate their own inheritance. Thus all beings were treated by him with an equal and sweet, though solemn, courtesy. The young and unknown, the woman and the child, all felt themselves regarded with an infinite expectation, from which there was no reaction to vulgar prejudice. He demanded of all he met to use his favourite phrase, great truths. His memory, every way dear and reverend, is by many especially cherished for this intercourse of unbroken respect. At one time, when the progress of Harriet Martineau through this country, Angelina Grimke's appearance in public, and the visit of Mrs. Jameson, had turned his thoughts to this subject, 
he expressed his high hopes as to what the coming era would bring to woman. He had been much pleased with the dignified courage of Mrs. Jameson in taking up the defence of her sex, from which women usually shrink, because if they express themselves on such subjects with sufficient force and clearness to do any good, they are exposed to assaults whose vulgarity makes them painful. In intercourse with such a woman he had shared her indignation at the base injustice, in many respects and in many regions, done to the sex, and been led to think of it far more than ever before. He seemed to think that he might some time write upon the subject. That his aid is withdrawn from the cause is a subject of great regret, for on this question as on others he would have known how to sum up the evidence, and take in the noblest spirit middle ground. He always furnished a platform on which opposing parties could stand and look at one another under the influence of his mildness and enlightened candour. Two younger thinkers, men both, have uttered noble prophecies, auspicious for woman. Kinmont, all whose thoughts tended toward the establishment of the reign of love and peace, thought that the inevitable means of this would be an increased predominance given to the idea of woman. Had he lived longer to see the growth of the peace party, the reforms in life and medical practice which seek to substitute water for wine and drugs, pulse for animal food, he would have been confirmed in his view of the way in which the desired changes are to be effected. In this connection I must mention Shelley, who like all men of genius shared the feminine development, and unlike many, knew it. His life was one of the first pulse-beats in the present reform growth. He too abhorred blood and heat, and by his system and his song tended to reinstate a plant-like gentleness in the development of energy. In harmony with this, his ideas of marriage were lofty, and of course no less so of woman, her nature and destiny. For woman, if by a sympathy as to outward condition she is led to aid the enfranchisement of the slave, must be no less so by inward tendency to favour measures which promise to bring the world more thoroughly and deeply into harmony with her nature. When the lamb takes place of the lion as the emblem of nations, both women and men will be as children of one spirit, perpetual learners of the word and doers thereof, not hearers only. A writer in the New York Pathfinder, in two articles headed, Femality, has uttered a still more pregnant word than any we have named. He views woman truly from the soul, and not from society, and the depth and leading of his thoughts are proportionably remarkable. He views the feminine nature as a harmonizer of the vehement elements, and this has often been hinted elsewhere, but what he expresses most forcibly is the lyrical, the inspiring and inspired apprehensiveness of her being. This view being identical with what I have before attempted to indicate, as to her superior susceptibility to magnetic or electric influence, I will now try to express myself more fully. End of section 8